Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page and become a supporter at any level. And if you do so, even if it's just a dollar, you'll have access to my patron-only lectures, including the last installment of History of the United States in 100 Objects, which I posted on Patreon for patrons a few days ago. And this one is on the Hadley Chest, an example of the first distinctive regional artistic style ever to emerge in the English colonies. So it's taken me a while to get back to recording. I've been rather congested with seasonal allergies. Hopefully those are going away. But as you can imagine, it rather impedes recording hour or hour and a half long lectures. But nonetheless, I want to talk now about something I promised to address in my lectures on the Roma. And that is the so-called traveler communities in Britain and Ireland. So I'm going to talk about Irish travelers and British travelers of various varieties and descriptions. And of course, I do not just mean people who travel, like pensioners who go to the beach in Spain, but rather I'm talking about specific social and ethnic groups that are part of British and Irish society that customarily or traditionally live an itinerant lifestyle or who have enduring traditions, customs, and identities linked to an itinerant lifestyle, even if they now live a more settled or sedentary style of life. So the histories of these various traveler groups in the British Isles are very difficult to reconstruct for many reasons. For one thing, there are almost no primary documents. Most travelers through most of their history, through many generations, have been illiterate and produced no written documents of their own. When they are referred to in written documents, such as state documents or literary accounts, it's often through very changeable and confusing and ambiguous terms. And overall, it's very difficult to even find clues as to their existence even, let alone their activities through the centuries, even more so than is the case with the Roma, who at least when they showed up in a region would attract some notice and attention and something like decrees or letters of passage uh, attesting to their presence in a country. The travelers in the British Isles, by contrast, have usually been a sort of fixed, familiar aspect of society that, although they are well-known, have usually just been overlooked as not important enough to even mark in the record. And as for the secondary sources about the, tra the travelers, there has been a flowering of books and even scholarship about traveling people in the British Isles in recent years, since about 2000 or so. And also there has been journalism and the travelers have come more and more into the news. But the news reports about them, for one thing, tend to be very shallow and have very little discussion of their history or the nature of their society, if there's any reference to it at all. And the books about travelers, there are some now, and they might be decent, but they're almost always structured as sort of first-person memoir travelogues. 
and they tend to be meandering, impressionistic, and centered very much on the author's own experiences or encounters with the travelers. And they tend to do very little and to have very little interest in reconstructing the history of the traveler communities. And if they mention it at all, it's usually just sort of a gesture towards some sort of conventional wisdom, myth, or fable about where they came from. So it's very difficult and it takes a lot of digging even just to piece together what are the clues about the, the history and development of British and Irish travelers. Now, one thing that should be laid out clearly up front is that when we talk about travelers, the term right away is very ambiguous, especially when we're talking about Great Britain, because there are really multiple overlapping and intersecting groups that have different roots and different practices, but that are impossible to disentangle because they have had so much interaction and often intermixture through the years. So when we talk about travelers, often people break them up, whether rightly or wrongly, into various regional groups. So one can talk about not only Irish travelers, but English travelers, Scottish travelers, Welsh travelers gypsies, English gypsies, gypsy travelers, Roma, Romani Chal, Romani gypsies, show people, tinkers, boat people, van people, etc., etc. And I'll try to explain a bit who these different groups are and to what degree they interrelate. So firstly, if one starts in Ireland, the picture is a little simpler. You have Irish travelers, who are a distinct social and ethnic group that is indigenous to Ireland, does not derive from any migrant group that came from any other country. In Great Britain, the population is more complicated, and there's an overlapping and blended or layered network of travelers. As I mentioned, there are English, Welsh, and Scottish travelers, who sometimes are also generically called gypsies or gypsy travelers. And it seems that in Britain, the terms traveler and gypsy can be used almost interchangeably. And gypsy has taken on a different meaning, whereas in continental Europe, it is more of an ethno-linguistic label. In Britain, it has come to be used as a byword for traveler, almost like the word bohemian is used or was used in France. And the different regional groups that I mentioned have various roots and compositions. There are Roma, who in Britain are sometimes called Romani Chal or Romani Gypsies to more specifically designate them and distinguish them from other so-called gypsy travelers. And these have intermarried and intermixed with all sorts of other itinerant groups, such as show people, which is a term for traveling people generally who operate fun fairs, especially in the summer, and have formed their own kind of distinct subculture, comparable, you might say, to the so-called carnies who run carnivals in America. Also, new travelers or new age travelers, 
or sometimes called van people, which is another group or layer of traveling people that formed in the 1970s out of the counterculture of that time and that has partly merged into older traveling networks. And boat people who are largely derived from new travelers who have simply moved on to itinerant life on boats. And also there is a large infusion, especially in recent years, of Irish travelers from Ireland who began migrating for economic reasons to Britain, especially in the 1950s, but have continued to immigrate into Britain in the decades since then. So you have a very complicated, layered set of traveling people who tend to be interconnected, but also have their own distinct identities. And there can even be, as I'll mention later, friction and tension between, especially between so-called Romani gypsies and Irish travelers. So if we want to explain who these different groups are and where they came from, it's simplest, I think, to start with Ireland which has a case that is in some ways more straightforward, but also very mysterious. So Irish travelers are a distinct group that has existed in Ireland for at least several centuries. We don't know exactly how long. And today they seem to number about 30 to 40,000 people. So official census counts find about 29,000, but it's clear that official censuses do not reach all travelers. So a good estimate might be closer to about 40,000. There are also thousands of Irish travelers now in the UK and the US, particularly in the southeastern US. Irish travelers practice trades similar to the Roma in continental Europe. And because of their similar social roles and some similar practices, they're sometimes also called gypsies. So this term can just be extended almost ad infinitum to apply to any itinerant people. Another very common and long-lasting term for Irish travelers is tinkers. And this seems to derive from the idea that they were traditionally metal workers, particularly in tin, and also that they performed all kinds of minor trades. Uh, and so the, the word tinker can be used to mean a sort of repair person or jack of all trades. And that also has been linked for a long time to Irish travelers, but it is not a formal term. Irish travelers traditionally call themselves by various endonyms, especially pave or mincari. And sometimes a more formal traditional term for the travelers in Ireland in the Irish Gaelic language is anlucht schulta, or the walking people. And the travelers have certain distinct customs in clothing and food. They also, in addition to their trades, live in large part by hunting, which is an important activity for the traveler lifestyle. And significantly, the travelers have their own language, which by linguists is formally called shelta. And this sort of formal name for the language might derive from that Gaelic word shulta, meaning walking. Internally, the language has also traditionally been called the cant or gammon, both of which just mean talk. And it seems that there are different dialects and varieties of shelta, and certain dialects are more often referred to as cant and others as gammon. Externally, it's sometimes called the tinker's cant. 
And Shelta is, broadly speaking, a Celtic language, and it's mainly a blending of Irish Gaelic with English. The lexicon of Shelta tends to be more Irish-derived, while the grammar is more English. And this might sound familiar, it's basically the same pattern that we see in Romany, the language of the Roma in Europe, where the lexicon is overwhelmingly Indian-derived or Indic, and the grammar is more creolized with a lot of influence from Armenian and Greek and other languages. So this may reflect a similar sort of pattern where there's a sort of core language that uh, supplies the original vocabulary from some core group. And then as other people, outsiders, joined into the group and learned that language, they influenced the grammar over time to be more similar to the that of the external society. There also are some aspects, especially of the lexicon in Shelta, that seem to reflect intentional encoding, the creation of words and phrases to obscure meaning to outsiders. And so in this way, it is partly a cryptolect. For example, some words are formed simply by taking Gaelic words and reversing them. For example, the word for sun is cam, which seems to be the Gaelic word mac, just flipped backwards. Other words are formed by adding a G sound. For example, the word for job in Gaelic is ober, and in Shelta it becomes gruber. So there's this sort of habitual adding of G sounds onto the beginning or end, almost sort of like, you know, pig Latin, game codes that people create. And this may come, we really don't know for sure why this happened, but the theory is that it comes from an intentional effort to conceal meanings from outsiders whom the travelers call buffers. So that is their common name for foreigners, for non-travelers, in a similar way to how the Roma refer to foreigners as gaja. So it's significant, you might say, that if it is true that Shelta partly derives from a cryptolect, an intentional concealing of words, it's significant that they did this with Gaelic words, as if to hide their meanings from other speakers of Gaelic, which suggests that the words in the language originally formed at a time when Gaelic was the common spoken language of Ireland, which would be a while ago, as opposed to today when the travelers, if they chose to, could pretty easily conceal their communications just by speaking Irish Gaelic. <laughs> this would hide their communications pretty effectively, but it seems that was not the case centuries ago when Shelta began to branch off and evolve as a distinct language. So when might this be? And by extension, when do we suppose that the travelers formed as a distinct people? What are their origins? Well, the evidence here is very patchy, and it's hard to match up any known particular historical phenomenon directly to the travelers that we see today. We know of the existence, even in the early Middle Ages, of traveling craftsmen and bards, which seems to fit with the sort of pattern we would expect. People who worked especially in metals and entertainers who performed dance, music, theater, and so forth were commonly itinerant, as was normal throughout much of Europe. There are some medieval references mainly to traveling tinkers, 
that suggest that they were a sort of distinct group or subculture unto themselves. But it's very much a matter of dispute whether these tinkers are the direct forebears of the travelers of today. There is, as I mentioned, the linguistic evidence. There are signs of extensive evolution of Shelta, by which it really diverged into its own distinct language as apart from Hiberno-English or Gaelic. And it seems this divergence must have begun a long time ago, maybe around the 1200s. However, we can't know this directly because the first collection of words from Shelta was not published until 1808, by which time it was clearly already a distinct and mature language. There also are certain events through centuries of Irish history that are somehow associated with the travelers, particularly horse fairs, large gatherings for trading of horses that were bred and trained mainly by traveling people. And the big one in Ireland is Balinaslo, which was already a well-known event by no later than 1804, and probably is much older, going back at least into the 1700s. So if it's true that the horse fairs in the 18th century were operated in a fairly similar way to how we see them today, then probably the travelers were involved. There are also oral histories of the travelers themselves, which usually take the form of family histories and genealogies. And when scholars or government officials speak to travelers about their families and their lineages, it's common for many of them to point to some ancestor who went out on the road due to eviction from their land, which is a common occurrence in Ireland, especially as the Protestant ruling class sought to dispossess the Catholic majority, or they point to an ancestor who went on the road because they sought to practice some trade like being a bard. But apart from these, the majority of traveler families are, in their words, traditional, meaning that they have simply always been travelers since time immemorial, and they cannot point to any particular point in time where their forebears switched over from being settled to traveling. And these traditional travelers most often point to tinsmithing as their traditional profession, something that ran through their family. So this suggests it's possible that there is a kind of longer-lasting or older core traveling group that was focused especially on tinsmithing, and then other itinerant people, for one reason or another, joined them over time and grew and adapted the community. There also is visual evidence, at least as early as the early 19th century. This is during the Romantic period, as I talked about with regard to the Roma. And it's a time when artists are creating genre paintings, sort of capturing the romance, the mystery, the color of everyday rural life and folk life. And there are Irish genre paintings of this kind from the early 1800s that show traveler encampments with caravans and tents. And it seems that already by that time, the common custom was round bowed tents. So tents built around arching bent wood ribs. And these tents could then be quickly and easily adapted into bow top wagons, simply put them on a base with wheels, hitch a horse, 
and you have a little traveling home. And this seems to have become common by no later than the 1830s, but we don't know how far back they go before that. Then the government began to be involved as well as the Anglo-Irish state expanded. And there's an important 1835 report on the conditions of the poor in Ireland, which does not specifically refer to travelers, much less does it refer to their own ethnonyms like Pave or Mincari. But it does say that tinkers traveled around Ireland with their families, often begging or stealing and they were described as a distinct class. So this is, you know, a negative depiction from the point of view of the state. They see them as a social problem involved in bad activities. But they recognize that they're, they're not simply random criminals on the road. They somehow form a distinct group unto themselves. And so it's open at least to question whether these tinkers that this report refers to are, in fact, what we would call travelers. Also around the same time, there start to be some literary sources giving indications of the existence of the travelers. These do not appear before 1800, and a reason for this is that Irish literature before that time was not about Ireland. Irish writers were overwhelmingly focused on the English-speaking market in Great Britain, where there were more readers and more money. And so it was only in 1800 that certain new sorts of novels like Castle Rackrent began to actually talk about Irish life. And it's clear from mentions of the travelers that they were a well-established presence in the country by the 1840s, although it can be hard to pin down exactly what is referring to them or not, because they were often lumped together or confused with Roma or Gypsies. And these, of course, would have been the terms that were more familiar and evocative to most of the English reading public. So they're not, the Irish travelers are not often clearly distinguished from them. And you can see, for example, one scholar has pointed out the mention of a Gypsy encampment in the final internal monologue of James Joyce's Ulysses, where Penelope mentions Gypsies setting up an encampment near a laundry, and it, that may really be talking about Irish travelers. It's just not specific enough to know for sure. And from all of these mentions, we can reconstruct that the travelers by the mid-1800s functioned in a variety of trades as horse traders, itinerant farm laborers, tinsmiths and tin repairers, and as entertainers. And they also, particularly the traveler women, often made household objects like baskets and brooms, and sometimes told fortunes. So... The social and economic niche, again, appears very similar to what we see with the Roma in other parts of Europe. In terms of their own customs and traditions, they were Catholic in religion. They customarily had large families, much like the Roma. They practiced early marriage, often around 18 or 19 years of age, often arranged marriages, and they had lots of children. They had clear, distinct gender roles in terms of men engaging in trades outside the home and women overseeing the home itself, but they were not as unequal 
as the gender roles might be in some other societies. Men were not always expected to have supreme authority in a family or a clan. So they could be somewhat egalitarian in that way, and they were very egalitarian in terms of heads of household. So the elders in an extended family might be very respected, but they did not rule, and they did not have formalized courts by which leaders or chieftains could hand down rulings and decrees like you see among the Roma. There is an extreme importance among travelers of gatherings, which affirm the the relationships and maintain the relationships among travelers themselves. And these include, very importantly, annual fairs, some of which are connected to the town of Rathkeel in southern Ireland, which is often seen as kind of the, the pilgrimage site or the spiritual home of travelers, where many of them have friends and family. Also, gatherings for life events like weddings, marriage negotiations, funerals, and fights. If there are disputes among travelers that cannot be resolved, they often engage in sort of formalized physical fights. And this emphasis on physical fighting creates a pathway for many travelers into the world of boxing. And there have been successful boxers both from the Irish traveler community and also from the gypsy traveler community in Britain. So these are some of the sort of continuing patterns that we can see as through lines in Irish traveler life. But as for how they function and how they're perceived in modern Ireland, well, in Victorian and modern times, elites in Ireland have often looked at the travelers and naturally compared them, as I have done, and contrasted them with the Roma. And the differences have been taken to be very important. So elites, whether it's scholars or government bureaucrats or teachers even, often see the Roma as ancient, authentic, and a sort of legitimate representation of the traditional itinerant lifestyle. Whereas in contrast, travelers are seen as merely posers who do not have the the history and the authenticity of the Roma and rather are often cast as just failures, people who have for one reason failed at or dropped out of normal mainstream society. There's also often a sort of strange racial overtone to the contrast between the Roma and Irish travelers. And Roma, especially in the Victorian age and the early 20th century, were often sort of celebrated as representatives of this ancient exotic race from India. And in the eyes of some, like the Nazis, that gave them a special status because they were Aryan coming from India. Whereas the travelers are seen as sort of mixed bloods. And there are informal or somewhat derogatory terms often applied to many Irish travelers like pikey that imply degeneracy and racial mixture. So pikey is particularly a negative term applied to people who are seen as having a mixture of Irish and Roma blood. Although that, for one thing, is just not common among Irish travelers at all. You know, the the great irony here, as I'll talk about later, is that the Irish travelers are Irish. (laughs) Then there's very little connection to the Roma, and certainly no Roma involvement in the creation of the Irish travelers as a distinct group. It's something that happened indigenously in Ireland. 
So with these sorts of judgments and perceptions in their minds, how has the modern Irish state approached the travelers? Well, they really didn't approach them at all and until after World War II, until this sort of massive change in Irish society as Ireland became a more modern and affluent society starting in the 1950s. And in the 50s and 60s, there were concerted efforts and policies to try to resettle the Irish travelers and make them into what they saw as proper sedentary citizens. And the state gave out a survey in 1952 to school children for them to bring to their parents in order to gain information about the travelers and their history and their lifestyle, both from members of the traveler world and outsiders. And the state was very excited to find, among other things, that 10% of all the traveler parents said that their own parents had been settled had had a fixed place of abode, like a house. And this was taken as an indication that the travelers were not an ancient community, but rather they were just a new phenomenon created by sort of social dropouts going out on the road. And hence that meant that this pattern could be reversed and it should be possible in principle to bring them back to settled life. So in 1962, the government set up a commission on itinerancy. So they're, they're not talking about these people as a, as a group, much less as an ethnic group, but rather itinerancy as a phenomenon or a problem. And they created a report in 1963 that proposed that the travelers could and should be reabsorbed into normal society. And the goal with the travelers was to settle them and get them accepted into normal society, assimilated and embraced by their neighbors as part of mainstream society. And the ultimate marker of success, according to these programs, was intermarriage, was if the travelers stopped their endogamy, their habit of only marrying within the community, and instead intermarried and thus blended back into general Irish society. Now, as with efforts at settling and assimilating Roma in Europe, once again, this project was impeded by outside prejudice. There were simply many towns, villages, neighborhoods that did not want and did not welcome these travelers, much less did they want to marry them. So this has really been stymied, and the distinct traveler population has continued. Despite all kinds of economic hardship and social problems, they do persist as a distinct group. And in recent years, some towns and cities have set aside walled encampment sites to sort of allow the travelers a place to live as they move, but keep them a bit out of sight, keep them contained. And they've tended to be very isolated from external society by a lot of mutual avoidance on both sides. And there's a lot of heavy local resistance to the creation of new sites. So it's really limited for travelers' ability to set up an encamp somewhere where they haven't been seen before. They continue to have high birth rates. The median number of children for a traveler mother is 10 children. But counteracting that, there is very high infant and mother mortality and high overall death rates. Part of this is probably because of the, you know, the strain and the deprivations of an itinerant lifestyle. 
but also it clearly has to do with the economic problem of the increasing obsolescence of the traveler's social functions. So a lot of the traveler economy has been based for centuries on horses and the the breeding and sale of horses, for which there is still some demand, but for the most part, those have been replaced by motors. Also, farm work, low-wage farm work, has been replaced by motorized equipment like tractors and threshers. Cheap consumer goods, much like with the Roma, it's now possible to simply buy and discard all kinds of cheap tools, dishware. And so the creation or especially repair of these everyday items is simply no longer viable. And with this loss of the economic base, travelers have shifted dramatically into cities where a lot of them live in sort of poor or outlying slum areas, largely collecting and selling scrap or other recycled and salvaged goods and depending a lot on government support. And this economic decline among the travelers has led to a number of impacts. One is emigration, especially to Great Britain. So today there's almost as big of an Irish traveler population in Britain as there is in Ireland. Although, again, it's very difficult to count them and distinguish them from all the other traveler groups in Britain. There's been a great deal of rapid sedentarization as the itinerant lifestyle has just become economically untenable. There has been a rapid drop in the percentage of travelers living in horse-drawn caravans, which is the sort of iconic traditional lifestyle. So whereas about 92% of all Irish travelers lived in horse-drawn homes of some sort in 1960, so even quite late after World War II, that has fallen to only 4% by 1981. So this is a really rapid shift just over the course of the 1960s and 70s. And today, most travelers tend to live in mobile home parks, in trailers in a fairly fixed location, or often in public housing. They suffer from very high death rates and especially high rates of suicide. And among men, it seems that as much as many as 5% of traveler men die from suicide. So there's a huge crisis in social dislocation, depression, and mental illness. So under these very difficult conditions, there was the beginning of greater political organization and a dawn of concerted advocacy for the traveler community in Irish society, beginning in the 1970s. And the common aim and demand of this advocacy is the ability to continue the itinerant way of life while having the normal rights of citizenship. A significant turning point happened just a few years ago when the High Court in Ireland ruled that the Irish travelers were an ethnic minority in 2017. And this can sound very strange because, as I've been saying, it's a lifestyle and a language and traditions that distinguish the travelers, and they are indigenously Irish, But nonetheless, there are grounds for describing them as a distinct ethnic group anyway. And it seems that some sort of process of ethnogenesis took place within Ireland, where this group in some way branched off to become 
really distinct from the settled Irish population. So how could that have happened? What are the different theories or ideas or speculations about how the travelers became travelers, about how this group branched off in, in a sense, if that is what happened? Well, some early knowledge about the travelers that could reflect on their origins was collected, as I said, in the early 1800s. Observations about their art, references to them in literature, observations and collections of words from their language. But the first sort of systematic effort to figure out who the travelers were and where they could have come from was that 1952 survey. And if one looks through the answers to that survey, many people connected them or linked them in some way to the gypsies, but in a very unsure and tentative way, and particularly travelers themselves, unless they happened to know that they personally had a gypsy ancestor, did not point to an origin connected to the Roma. Rather, most people, both within and outside the traveler community, tended to speak of them as a fixture in Irish life, just going back into time immemorial. And there's one interesting answer by a non-traveler man from that survey, where when asked about the origins of where the travelers came from, he answered, quote, Nothing to say under this head, except that the travelers have always been coming and going through Croom. And he underlines always. <laughs> so he's emphasizing this is just something we are used to as a permanent, unchanging part of life in this specific part of Ireland. But another term that comes up a lot in a lot of these answers is the word tinkers. And it seems that many people, including some travelers themselves, thought of themselves as continuous with this world of the tinkers. And so the notion that travelers derived originally from tin workers and repairers, it, it certainly has some purchase in the popular imagination, whether or not it can be verified historically. Now, in the 1960s, as the government was really getting into this campaign to resettle and make the travelers sedentary, they issued government reports, and also there was a flurry of academic studies and reports, like dissertations, about the travelers, and they tended to point to the Great Famine as the supposed point of origin of travelers. So this was the Potato Famine in the 1840s and 50s. And the notion was that because of the devastation, the poverty, and the desperation of many of the Irish peasants, that some portion of them set out onto the roads, and this is what gave rise to the travelers. Alternatively, American anthropologists who started looking into the travelers tended to emphasize personal and individual problems, such as alcoholism or illegitimacy, that led certain individuals to go out and leave normal society and become itinerant. And these people supposedly slept rough, were basically homeless, what, you know, what in America we would call hobos. And this continued supposedly until the introduction of tents in the late 1800s, which made it possible for these people to then live this hobo lifestyle permanently, and thus they coalesced into the traveler underworld. 
So in effect, this this American theory is that they're basically just continual social dropouts. And both of these ideas, the, the notion that the Great Famine was the precipitating event or that it was just individual sort of failures, both of these reaffirmed this hope that the process could be reversed, that this kind of social problem of itinerancy could be solved by making them sedentary again. But, of course, many travelers themselves did not see it this way. They insisted that this lifestyle was just as normal and traditional for them as the sedentary lifestyle was for the settled Irish population. And there was this kind of loggerheads where people could not come up with a broadly accepted explanation. And in this context, in 2017, a genetic study of some travelers was published in Scientific Reports. And the sample size of this study is very small. I believe it was only 42 travelers whose DNA were sampled. But the scientists did take some steps to ensure that it was a broad uh, assemblage or cross-section of the traveler population and that no people in the sample were closely related kin. And they came to several conclusions fairly firmly based on their comparison of the genomes of these travelers with other Irish people, Roma, and other Europeans from various countries. For one thing, they found no connection at all to the Roma, and no traveler whose genome they considered showed any sort of common ancestry with Romani people, except for one who had said that they had a gypsy ancestor. Rather, the traveler population appears to be completely connected only to Ireland. There is no marker or tendency among the genomes of Irish travelers that connect them to any other country or population in Europe. However, they are also quite different from the settled Irish population. So while they are most closely linked to the fe fellow Irish people, they still show a dramatic divergence from the sedentary Irish. Enough, uh, as, about as much difference as one sees between the population of Scotland and that of Spain. So there's really a dramatic difference here, and the divergence between the sedentary Irish and the travelers must have happened, they argue, at least eight generations ago, more likely around 12 generations ago, so several hundred years. And for one thing, this dispels the notion that the divergence stemmed from the Great Famine of the 1840s. And again, this aligns with the other evidence we've been talking about, literary, artistic, which shows that there was some sort of distinctive tinker or traveler subculture existing in Ireland well before the 1840s. Now, furthermore, in their genetic comparisons, these scientists found that the travelers fall into two pretty distinct branches, and they can be roughly grouped together as branch A and branch B. Branch A includes people who mostly tend to be connected to the town of Rathkeel, that town I mentioned before in County Limerick in southern Ireland, where many, but not all, travelers have family connections. Group A also tends to speak the Gammon dialect of Shelta. 
as opposed to, on the other hand, group B, which tends to speak can't, and which does not have any tendency to be connected to Rathkeel. So these two groups are also quite distinct from one another, just as they are quite distinct from the sedentary Irish. And it seems that group B, the can't-speaking group, is more genetically distinct from the other Irish, as opposed to group A. So they're the most unique, you could say. However, this does not mean that group B branched off from the rest of the Irish population earlier. Rather, they think it's the opposite. So group A, the the Rathkeel-connected group, or the Gammon-speaking group, may have existed for longer, but they haven't diverged genetically as far as group B has, and that is because they think group B has shrunken over time. They're sort of going through a population bottleneck, and they've become more shrunken, and as a population shrinks, if I understand the science correctly, as a population shrinks, they become more susceptible to genetic drift to sort of genetic mutations, unique, unusual features becoming highly concentrated in that small group. And so it is true that there are certain genetic conditions and disorders, such as Hurler's syndrome, that are very common among travelers. So then, if we say that this evidence really puts to rest the idea of a recent divergence within the past 200 years, then what could be the origins? Does this shed any light on where the travelers may have come from? Well, other observers, when this study came out, pointed to other earlier disastrous events before the Great Potato Famine, such as the Ulster colonization of Northern Ireland, which began in the 1590s, or the Cromwell invasions, which were very violent in the mid-1600s. But all of these observers, again, they keep looking for a disastrous event, something that must have disrupted the lives of normal Irish peasants in order to make them into travelers. But they fail to consider, for one thing, pull factors rather than just push factors. In other words, they do not think about the possible attractions of an itinerant lifestyle or the economic opportunities that it might present as compared to sedentary life. And if you think back to the oral family histories that I mentioned, many of them say there was some activity, some pursuit, some occupation that an Irish person wanted to pursue that made them itinerant and brought them into the traveler world. So we have to consider there is, as I said about the Roma, There seems to be a distinctive social and economic niche for nomadic people within a sedentary society, within European civilization. And it's just a changing matter over time exactly what that niche is and how big it is. And it has shrunken from the late 19th century to today. But really, more fundamentally, we have to turn the question around. All all of these observations that government officials and scholars until recent years have made about the travelers have tended to see them as necessarily aberrant, or in the words of one very derogatory American description, quote, degraded form of Irish people. 
And another encapsulation of this you can see in a government report on poverty in Ireland from 1969, which said, quote, Unlike British or European gypsies, the itinerants are the product not of an ancient, highly cultured race with its own folklore and culture, but of the immiseration of a section of the ordinary illiterate peasantry in Ireland. So thus their, their lifestyle, in the views of this sort of learned mindset, requires explanation because it is assumed to be a deviation from the norm, which is settled life. But why? Why should this be assumed to be the norm and the travelers should be seen as an aberration requiring explanation? Well, as one paper presented to the Gypsy Lore Society in 2004 pointed out, most of Irish society was mobile and itinerant, living in encampments and temporary tent villages, not only in ancient times, but through the early Middle Ages until the 1100s. And it wasn't until the Anglo-Norman invasion in the 12th century imposed manorialism that most Irish people began living as sedentary peasants. And furthermore, Ancient society, including in Ireland, included metalworking specialists who also were customarily itinerant, at least up until the establishment of large wealthy abbeys that had enough resources to employ metalworkers permanently on their settlements in the high and late Middle Ages. So it only makes sense in this context that even as Ireland made this transition from a largely nomadic and semi-nomadic world into a medieval settled society, some people would continue to be itinerant. And as Ireland continued to be overwhelmingly rural, it's only natural that there were some people who could make their living best by traveling around among these small scattered population centers. So in this light, we can flip the question upside down and say what really demands explanation is not why some people are itinerant, but rather why most people became settled. And it, in that light, it's not so shocking that some itinerant community has continued down to today. And so in some, you could say the case of the Irish travelers shows that there is a certain place for itinerancy in what we think of as a sedentary civilization. And this can account for the existence both of the Irish travelers in Ireland and also the persistence of the Roma in most of the rest of Europe. And one could even say, I would say, the Irish travelers demonstrate that if there had been no Roma, Europe would have had to create them, as it did in Ireland there would have to be someone to step in to that social and economic niche. And it just happened that in most of Europe, that was Romani people, as well as others who joined them and became part of and integrated into the Roma community. Whereas in Ireland, there have been very, very few Roma. They're at the far western edge of Europe, and very few Roma ventured there. And when they did, there were already travelers there to fill that social niche. And so where there were no Roma, local indigenous people fulfilled that role. And we have to, again, challenge the assumption which I think is, is very embedded into 
the thinking of sedentary people like us, that nomadism is somehow in itself a, a, a fallen state and that it must be the result of deprivation or disaster as opposed to being a voluntary pathway chosen for its benefits and furthermore one that is sometimes demanded and supported by the settled population and that there is a complementarity between settled sedentary life and nomadic life. And in this light, you could say the the goal of settled civilization when looking at itinerant traveling people like the Irish travelers should be seeking to strike a balance and restoring that complementary relationship between the settled and the nomadic. Okay, with all of that in mind, let's look over then at the bigger island of Great Britain. So in Britain, as I said, there are multiple overlapping and intersecting networks of travelers, including some Irish travelers. But the earliest group that we can say for sure clearly existed as a distinct itinerant network in Britain is Roma. And there have always been more Roma in Britain than in Ireland, but fewer than in continental Europe. There were some early arrivals of Roma in Britain around 1500 in both England and Scotland. It seems that they were somewhat more welcomed in Scotland, but only a small number traveled there, and they did not have as much economic opportunity as in England. So the numbers grew more quickly in England than in Scotland. As I mentioned in my previous lecture about the Roma, there was some early study and interest in the Roma, in their language and their history, but there also was state hostility, and they began to be expelled in 1530. In the late 1500s and the 1600s, there was a dramatic upswell in hostility and violence towards Roma in Britain. They were treated under law as vagrants and hence as outlaws. They were often immediately killed. In 1589, there was an infamous incident in the city of York in northern England when 160 Roma men and women were all condemned to death as vagrants and outlaws just for being gypsies. But most of them were able to demonstrate in some way that they had been born in Britain and hence were entitled to some protection of British common law or English common law, I should say. And so only nine of them were actually executed. <laughs> this, you know, on the point of view of the authorities, this was very merciful. So it was a very dangerous life and it was a very limited Romany population in Britain. But it seems that this small Romany population became a sort of seed element where other people interested in an itinerant lifestyle would join and glom on to a sort of growing hodgepodge itinerant world. And this sort of larger British community of travelers grew around them. And there became a common presence of caravans and encampments around different parts of Britain. Now, meanwhile, there were some, it seems, traveling groups and networks that formed largely independent of the Roma with an unclear amount of connection or interaction. There, it seems, were distinct Scottish travelers who were mostly indigenous to Scotland, at least as early as the 1700s. They may have been there even earlier than that, and that might be part of why most Roma did not stay for very long in Scotland, but rather they tended to move on from Scotland to the Scandinavian countries. And for, for instance, in Finland, 
it seems many of the Roma trace their ancestry back at some point to Scotland. So there may have been a sort of similar parallel Scottish traveler world going on, similar to the Irish travelers, but it's very sketchy. We don't know very much. There also have been Welsh travelers and Welsh Kale. So that term I've mentioned before that's used for Roma in Spain and Finland and other countries, it's also used in Wales. And there seems to be a sort of intermixed spectrum of Kale and non-Kale travelers in Wales. There also has arisen since the 19th century a distinct subculture of so-called showmen or show people, which is people who are itinerant, usually only seasonally. So they might have some sort of home base to which they return, especially in the winter, but they travel during the summer to run shows and fun fairs. And it seems the showmen have also developed their own sort of distinct subculture. They tend to intermarry among themselves to have their own distinct encampments and a guild by which they organize and cooperate economically. And they have also developed their own cant, as it's called in British English, a sort of distinct lingo that has diverged so much from normal English speech that it is, it's incomprehensible. And it's possible that in the case of the showmen or show people, we're actually seeing a similar kind of ethnogenesis at work. It may be the same kind of thing that gave rise to the distinct traveler ethnic group in Ireland that may be happening as we speak among these showmen in Britain. But, you know, it's impossible to know, and we don't know what the future holds. Maybe these fun fairs will simply fade out as they're replaced by, you know, home entertainment. So in this sort of complicated overlapping world of English and Welsh and Scottish travelers, of so-called English gypsies, there is a pervasive Romany influence, which is more or less diffuse around the whole traveler world. And probably these different travelers and so-called gypsies or Roma have been brought together mainly by the main shared industry in which all of them tend to be involved, and that is horse trading. So travelers of all sorts of backgrounds tend to gather together and form or reaffirm relationships with one another at the enormous horse festivals, the biggest of which is held at the town of Appleby in Cumbria, so a small, quaint English town of a few thousand people in the far northwest of England. They have been holding a horse festival of some sort since at least 1685, and by today it's really become the great mecca for people interested in thoroughbred and highly well-trained specialized horses. These horses are often highly valued, some of them are worth over 20,000 pounds, and the horse festival really massively multiplies the size of the town for a few days in June every year. It's a huge site for trading, also for celebrating and carousing, and it is closely monitored and contained by police who are worried about petty crime, drunkenness, drunk driving, drunk horseback riding, and so on. But it's really central to this entire gypsy and traveler world around Britain. There are certain customs that clearly have Romany roots that have become pervasive in the traveler world in Britain, such as customs around cleanliness, the separation of the clean from the unclean, the separation of the upper body from the lower body. And people have observed 
For instance, when travelers set up an encampment, they tend to do so by a river or body of water, and they have strict rules whereby they will wash the upper body clothing, the farthest upstream, to get the sort of purest water, and lower body clothing or underwear further downstream, and then they'll engage in personal bathing the farthest downstream. So there's this sort of heightened consciousness of what is clean and unclean, pure and impure, much like the the Romani customs. Also in the language of travelers. So it's common among all these groups, like I've been saying, to develop their own cant, their own lingo, which might even develop into a distinct language. And there's a heavy Romani infusion into the, the cant or the jargon of all of these groups. And it's common for British travelers who, are, who have been long established and long embedded into the traveler world for them to refer to outsiders as gadji, right? just a, a British variation of that Romani term gaja for foreigners. There's also a Romani infusion that you can see into all sorts of subcultures that have formed in Britain over the past several hundred years. So you can find sort of underworlds of various sorts, such as the crime world, the world of entertainment and theater, of circuses that have adopted Romani language. And in some cases, those Romani terms then have passed over into the general English vocabulary. And you can see words like pal for friend, also shiv for knife, which may have passed through the so-called thieves' cant, the jargon of the criminal underworld of London. Chav, meaning young man, teenage man, often used in a kind of pejorative way that comes from Romany. Also lollipop, a common uh, sweet given out at fairs and circuses. Skip as a word for dumpster. All of these are terms that have passed into English usage, at least into British English. So there are some, you know, my American audience might notice referring to a dumpster as skip is unfamiliar, but it is part of British vocabulary. And this indicates that this transition of the word, the adoption of the word from Romany into British English probably happened fairly recently, you know, before the massive migration of English colonists to America. So the the, the British form of English is more infused with these Romany words than the American is. Also, some of these terms passed over into English through polari. And polari is the traditional term for the distinctive lingo of the gay subculture of London, especially East London. And Polari is a whole complicated phenomenon to itself, unto itself. It's its own cant that developed by borrowing all sorts of words that would be unfamiliar to outsiders outside the gay world, which had to maintain a great veil of secrecy around itself in order to function safely. And a lot of these words were taken from the immigrant communities in East London, like Italian or Yiddish. The word polari is simply from the Italian parlare, talk. But a lot of it especially is from Romani. And so many gays or in some way gender nonconforming or sexually nonconforming men would often leave mainstream society, especially in the 19th century, and join the world of theater or vaudeville or the circus, which were run in many cases by Roma. 
And so you see terms being adopted into Polari, like, for, for instance, juice for styling your hair, which comes from the Romani for cleaning up. And some of these words then have passed from Polari into normal English, like drag, meaning cross-dressing. It's uncertain where this came from, but there's a good chance it comes from the Romani word indraka, meaning dress. So in Britain, maybe the most of any country in, in Europe, except possibly Spain, you can see this kind of blending and cross-fertilization of the local indigenous subcultures with the Romani. And that may be, it's for various reasons. For one thing, the enormous size of London and the British cities and the sort of cultural ferment, the mixtures of peoples going on in London. And it's also partly just the nature of the English language, that English speakers are just voracious in picking up words and phrases from other languages. Possibly it might also be because of the small number of Roma in Britain as compared to other countries on the continent, and the fact that it's not really possible for the Roma to maintain a sort of distinct social world unto themselves the way they do, say, in Romania or Hungary, whereas in, in Britain they have had to mix in with other people with whom they can cooperate and partner in this sort of itinerant or entertainment alternate world. Now, as for the views of elites and the state in Britain, there's a very ambivalent attitude among elites towards the Roma and travelers in Britain. And particularly when it comes to the Roma, there is a long-standing mixture of practical interest and prejudice against the Roma. There are, of course, many recorded cases of Roma begging and stealing as a way to survive or to just supplement their survival in Britain. And this has really become the stereotype. And you can see an image of the Roma or gypsies crystallizing in the 1700s and the early 1800s, that they are dangerous and conniving. And you can think, for example, of the scene in Emma, in Jane Austen's Emma, where one of the characters is attacked by a gypsy woman and her children. And this is remarkable because it's basically the only instance of crime or violence happening in a Jane Austen novel. And it's this gypsy sort of tribe. And this, it seems, was a pervasive way of perceiving the gypsies in Britain, as they were called, when you weren't trading with them by buying a household good or getting a pot repaired or having your fortune told. And this started to shift in the mid and late 1800s in the Victorian age. And at that time, there was a greater Victorian interest expressed now in the gypsies, who were seen as quaint and romantic and as embodying the free lifestyle of the countryside and itinerancy as against modernity, which is stifling and imprisoning. And of course, there was an interest in gypsy music and folklore and stories, as there was at the same time in the continent. And the Gypsy Lore Society was founded by non-Roma in 1888, and they immediately began publishing the journal of the Gypsy Lore Society, which continues down to today, although it has been renamed Roma Studies, you know, which is more politically correct and more in line with sort of academic conventions. But the Gypsy Lore Society started 
in the late 1880s, really right at the height of this late Victorian romantic backlash against mass production and urban life and what people saw as sort of the the spiritual deadness or hollowness of industrial society. So the Roma could be held up as this kind of perfect, romantic, exotic embodiment of what the late Victorians were yearning for, people in the arts and crafts movement, the aesthetic movement, and so on. As for the state, the state, like in Ireland, was basically uh, hands-off and really did very little with the traveler or gypsy populations in Britain until after World War II. And at that point, there was a kind of surprising rise in the number of itinerant travelers. You know, we might think today, oh, it's this vestige of the past and it fades away over time. But in fact, the groups really grew after World War II for a number of reasons. One was migration from Ireland, as I mentioned, as Irish travelers became increasingly impoverished. Many migrated to Britain, especially to centers like Manchester and Liverpool that already had an Irish population. And this led to some division and friction between, on the one hand, so-called English gypsies, so people who had been long-standing traveler families and clans in Britain, usually with some connection to the Roma, on the one hand, and the Irish travelers on the other hand. And there's a common pattern of so-called English gypsies or self-described Romany gypsies really looking down on the Irish travelers as outsiders, as lower class, more uncouth, and so on. So you'll you'll sometimes hear this when you see interviews with, with British travelers, that they'll insist that they are Romany gypsies, not Irish travelers. So there's and, and outsiders, too, often tended to see some hierarchy there that, like with the Victorians, they saw the Roma as embodying something inspiring and authentic, whereas the Irish travelers were just sort of degenerates or failures. And this sort of mindset seems to have influenced the approach to planning in the post-World War II Era. So the British government increasingly developed this new regime for development of particularly of the growing suburbs, which should plan how growth would happen and preserve the sort of attractiveness and charm, both of the suburbs and of the countryside. So there was an effort to create a sort of aesthetically ideal, as well as manageable form of development where sanitation and transport and so, and so on would be easy. And from this point of view, travelers were seen as eyesores and nuisances. And there was the beginning of many conflicts between travelers and local councils, where these planning laws could be used as a weapon to discourage or prohibit travelers from setting up camp within a certain zone. And you see the beginning of what you could call a sort of white elephant effect, where local authorities who have this planning power try to push out travelers or prevent them from entering their bailiwicks. And so they end up being sort of tossed around like white elephants around the country. And so this crisis is coming up in the 1960s, largely on a local level, involving these local councils and authorities, while meanwhile, the Westminster government was more aloof and more distant and didn't necessarily care about the details of what was going on on the ground. They just knew that these conflicts were bubbling up and there needed to be some sort of concerted policy. 
So Parliament in 1968 passed the Caravan Sites Act, which required that local authorities must provide sites for traveling for traveling people to set up their encampments, and that this had to be incorporated into any new planning. And so many councils around Britain did follow this directive, and this did relieve some of the pressure and conflict surrounding travelers' desire to find new sites at which to camp. So by the 1970s, you could see there was some move and apparent progress towards a sort of permanent niche incorporating traveling people into British society. And also, some British travelers or so-called gypsies were also able to rise to prominence, especially through boxing. And some of them became fairly wealthy and had a certain deal of prestige in the country. Some of them then also obtained private land. So if gypsies built up a fortune, one of the common things they could do was buy sort of strings of plots of land on which to set up encampment sites or small developments of mobile homes for travelers to live more permanently. So things might have seemed to be going more in that direction in the 1970s, but a new element came into the picture. So a new source of traveling people sort of brought another wave, another infusion of population. And that was the so-called new travelers, as they're sometimes called, or new age travelers. And this came out of the hippie or new age counterculture of the 60s and 70s. So already in the 60s, there was a custom of not exactly social dropouts, but people who had transitioned into this sort of hippie lifestyle to get vans or small buses and use them to travel around, go to concerts and so on. And an important turning point was the massive Glastonbury Festival in 1970. And the Glastonbury Festival was so enormous that it raised the possibility that people could start to basically live a lifestyle around and survive through these festivals and the money that they could raise. So a permanently mobile community began to form in vans, buses, and caravans, which would often move together among the different festivals, the so-called free festivals that were springing up all around England. And this was a sort of burgeoning pattern, but it provoked a lot of hostility from neighbors, from villages, from local councils, much as the older traveling community had in the 1950s and 60s. So there was a wave of repression, you could say a sort of reaction against this new age traveling lifestyle in the 1980s under the Thatcher government. Many of the festivals were prohibited and forcibly shut down. And this new sort of struggle between the new travelers and the state culminated on June 1st, 1985 in the so-called Battle of the Beanfield. So at that point, a large caravan of these new travelers were going to set up an encampment around Stonehenge, which had become a customary gathering site in the summer and around summer solstice. But this caravan was stopped by police. The police blocked the roadway and then chased down and beat many of these new travelers. One police officer was later convicted of malicious injury. But dozens of others were injured, and 537 
travelers were arrested. So the biggest mass arrest in modern British history. This crackdown really continued then through the rest of the 80s and on into the 90s. Some traveler camps around London that had existed for some time were cleared out. Many hundreds more were arrested. One uh, mass arrest was in 1992 on the so-called Isle of Dogs, a sort of semi-abandoned old warehouse peninsula in the Thames River right next to Canary Wharf, which was becoming the big new financial center of kind of modern skyscraper London. And naturally, the police didn't want this eyesore and possibly dangerous site of of petty crime and littering right next to the glittering new skyscrapers of the financial center. And so it was also forcibly cleared out around summer solstice 1992. And this new age traveling world has diminished, it seems, since the 1980s, but some of it has persisted by blending in with the traditional gypsy and traveler communities around Britain and intermixing with them or by transitioning into boats. So it's, you know, (laughs) you don't have the same legal authority to clear boats out of a canal as you do to clear buses or caravans off of a field. And so there is now a population of so-called boat people or bargers who largely live in houseboats of one sort or another on the canals of Britain. So this was the sort of state of conflict and struggle in the early 1990s, which led eventually into the 1994 Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, which you can probably guess from the title was not very friendly towards the travelers. And this act repealed most of the 1968 law, and it eliminated the obligation for local councils to provide sites for travelers. And rather, the law cracked down on caravans, on traveling, and in living on mobile vehicles. So it defined living in a mobile vehicle like a trailer as a form of homelessness, which has to be solved by the state, even if the person chooses to live that way. And since that time, there has really been a dearth of approved sites for encampment. The sites that still exist tend to have very long waiting lists and are overcrowded, often unsanitary, not surprisingly. And in this context, small numbers of travelers and gypsies do live habitually on unauthorized illegal sites, especially on public land like town commons or parks. And this naturally causes a lot of upset. Many complain about petty theft and about sanitation problems. A lot of these groups that camp on public land, after they're evicted, they leave behind all kinds of garbage and refuse. So there's a lot of hostility and and anger about the conduct of these particular travelers, and it has become a political issue in Great Britain. Meanwhile, most travelers and gypsies, the large majority, do not do this. They do not encamp on illegal public land, but rather many of them now make private arrangements with private landowners where they agree to keep plots of land clean and to provide some sort of services in exchange for the ability to camp. But many other landowners, private landowners, simply say travelers are unwelcome and try to evict them immediately. So there's a sort of game of of whack-a-mole as a lot of these caravans move around the country. 
And not surprisingly, in the late 90s and the 2000s, there's an increasing trend of travelers buying their own sites, buying farms or large fields or abandoned industrial sites or whatever to make into encampment sites for the traveler community. But nonetheless, many of these encampments on traveler-owned land are also often attacked and evicted based on planning violations. So the the laws now require planning approval from local councils before you can use even a piece of privately owned land as a site for an encampment. And this is particularly common in areas governed by Tory councils. It's become more and more of a large C conservative issue to try to eliminate or move away these traveler sites. A lot of this controversy is fed into by press sensationalism, which, you know, is common in the British press around all sorts of issues. There is frequent focus in the popular press on gypsy and traveler families that have many children and receive some sort of state benefits, which, of course, you have to be sedentary in order to receive these government benefits. But nonetheless, these families then make for fodder for sort of, uh, you know, sensational headlines about dependent moms drawing state benefits. There also are many news reports about these evictions and conflicts between landowners or councils and travelers. And they're often reported in terms of war or invasion. And one sort of noted example was in 2008, the Express magazine published a headline referring to, quote, anger at a gypsy invasion. And many stories focus on petty crime, on problems of noise and litter, which are common concerns for people near these traveler encampments, and also often refer to dropping property values. So the sort of suburban and rural small property holding class often sees a threat to their their own economic well-being when travelers show up in town. And in response to all of these problems, there has also been an effort to organize and advocate, as in Ireland, but even more so in Great Britain. And a lot of this organization and advocacy in Britain has coalesced in the so-called Light and Life Church, which is an evangelical Protestant church that has really taken off, especially in the Romani and Gypsy communities. It's estimated that today possibly up to 40% of British Gypsies belong to the Light and Life Church, and it has Romani leadership. So it can sort of put forward advocates and spokespersons from within the Romani or Gypsy or Traveler community. And many observers, including uh, allies and supporters of this cause, say that Light and Life Church can play a similar role to the Black Church, the traditional African-American evangelical church in America, and some explicitly draw those parallels. So all of these tensions were clearly in place by 2000, and they've really only mounted, you could say, after 2000, where now evictions are almost a daily occurrence around Britain. There's a sort of growing white elephant population of travelers, and there have even arisen private firms that specialize in evicting travelers. And some of them focus on evicting travelers from other people's private land, which private owners have the authority to do if they can 
get someone to enforce it. For example, there's a firm called Canine Patrol Security Services, which advertises on their website, quote, fast and effective traveler eviction services. Canine Patrol are a security company specializing in traveler and gypsy evictions for private and commercial property owners. And among the assets that they boast are, quote, fast traveler gypsy eviction services, which avert the need of waiting for a court order and canine security services that establish authority and respect. So there is sort of a cottage industry growing now of getting rid of travelers. And some firms, furthermore, specialize in evicting travelers or gypsies from their own land owned within the community, but that have not been planning approved for encampment sites. And a significant one is Constant and Company, which was formed in the 1990s and specializes in this. And their director told a reporter, quote, I've got nothing against travelers. They are our stock in trade. But what is the contribution they've made to our country? And you can see in this quote, I think, a common trope running through a lot of the public controversy around travelers in Britain, which is the idea that travelers are parasites who do not contribute to society. And of course, this ignores the history of why they've existed and all the various economic functions they've performed in the country through the years. And it's also significant, I think, that these critics of the travelers and their practices, they do not ever, as far as I can see, articulate an expectation of what they want the travelers to do, of what sort of contribution they expect to see in return for access to encampment sites. It's always just this assumption that they're inherently parasitic and that they just have to be gotten rid of from one place or another, even if there's no clear alternative of where they're then supposed to go or what they're supposed to do instead. And this mounting crisis culminated with the confrontation at Dale Farm in Essex. And in 1998, a group of gypsy travelers purchased an old scrapyard off of the main road near a village in Essex, northeast of London. And beginning in 2000, there was a large influx of travelers into this site, mainly Irish travelers. And the travelers among themselves divided this lot into small pitches on which one could place trailers or mobile homes. And many people moved in here and adopted a more permanent uh, attachment to the place. And some said it was the first time they had a place to call home. Uh, They sent their children to the local school and so forth. And the settlement in all grew to almost a thousand people over the next few years. But many neighbors fled or withdrew from the area and saw this as a problem producing noise, producing trash and litter. And also many parents withdrew their children from the school once these Irish traveler children started going there. And there was a threat that the school might close as it was losing students. And not surprisingly, the local council condemned the settlement at Dale Farm as violating planning codes. And they collected these complaints about noise and litter. Also, there were accusations about smuggling, illegal smuggling of cigarettes going through the site. And all of this was used as fodder 
to bolster the idea that these travelers should simply be evicted. And there were, of course, complaints about lower property values. And as I've said before, outsiders drew a distinction between different traveler groups. And some, at least, saw these Irish travelers as worse than other so-called gypsies. And one neighbor told a reporter, quote, I was brought up with the English gypsies. My sister even married an English gypsy, and they are still together. It's all these immigrants. These Irish are immigrants. They have come over here and abused the system. So you can see a, a combination here, a melding together of the common ideas and attitudes of hostility towards immigrants and towards travelers. And so the local council began trying to evict the, the entire settlement beginning in 2002. But in 2003, the government, directed by the deputy prime minister, the labor government, intervened and gave the travelers a two-year reprieve to work out a solution or find another site to which to move. So this reprieve lasted until 2005. And during that interval, the growth continued. But there also was a search for alternate sites to which they could move if they couldn't hold on to Dale Farm. But this search was continually blocked by planning laws and by other councils around the area and by neighbors who did not want this Dale Farm settlement transplanting into their area. So this was haggled over for years in the courts. And finally, after more than a decade, they were forcibly evicted in September 2011. And the forcible eviction involved the power being cut off, the police, and also Constantin Company, that private company that I quoted from before, moving in with batons and with cover from helicopters. And there was almost a pitched battle in the site. Some caravans were set on fire, but eventually the encampment was cleared out. And presumably the families from Dale Farm then had to simply go back on the road and begin this sort of game of hopscotch all over again. So Dale Farm was the first confrontation that was large enough and dramatic enough to really attract a lot of press attention, including international press. There were press from as far away as the U.S. and Japan watching this almost battle that destroyed the Dale Farm encampment. And it really dramatized, you could say, a paradox, where on the one hand, the travelers are criticized for their lifestyle. The fact that the children can't steadily attend school, they're not living in places with proper sanitation, they don't have planning approval, and so on. So they're criticized for their lifestyle and pressured to transition to some sort of settled life. But then when they do so, they're simply kicked out. They're condemned for settling. So it's a catch-22 situation. And this is really still where things are up in the air even today. And you can see that this issue, I think, is continuing and not going away due to an incident that I mentioned last time in Scotland. So there is a so-called gypsy traveler population in Scotland as well. It is a bit smaller, and it does not have a strong uh, Romany element, as in England. But in other ways, it's fairly similar, and they're facing a similar crisis of sort of having to hop around from site to site and not really being welcome wherever they go. And a controversy came up just recently 
because in the early 2010s, a traveler group in northern Scotland bought a piece of property in County Murray in the far northeast of the country and began setting up a site. But the local council leader, Douglas Ross, was very dismayed and he began a petition drive to get them evicted. But it happens that he was outdone by a competing petition drive in defense of the traveler site, which gathered more signatures. So politically, his effort was no-go. But nonetheless, he consulted with lawyers and magistrates about the possibility of completely prohibiting all traveler sites throughout Murray. And this, you could see, is a kind of escalation. If that had happened, then you would see not only people hopping from site to site, but maybe even from county to county as one after another expels them, much as happened to the Roma in the different countries of Europe centuries ago. So he looked into this possibility, but it didn't go anywhere, and basically the incident then died down and went unnoticed. But Douglas Ross went on to be elected to Parliament and became the MP for Murray in 2017. And As a new MP, he gave an interview in which he was asked, what would you do if you had just one day as prime minister? And he said he would like to see tougher enforcement against gypsy travelers. And this sort of caused some upset and surprise among the Scottish public. And some hay was made of it by his political opponents that of all things to address in Scotland or in Britain, that was the one thing he picked on. So it caused something of a flap, but it did not prevent him from nonetheless advancing to becoming the Scottish Conservative Party leader last year in 2020. So does this mean that this growing hostility around the gypsy travelers will somehow make its way into national politics on the Scottish level or the British level and into Westminster? Uh, We can't say it's possible, but if so, it's not unlike the growing controversy and hostility around the Roma in many other parts of Europe. And probably these things fit into a pattern where there is a certain economic contraction, a loss of resources, a cutting back of state services and resources across much of Europe over the last 10, 15 years since the financial crisis. And that is probably feeding into this increasing hostility both towards migrants and immigrants and towards local indigenous traveler populations. So thank you so much for listening. And again, if you want to hear all of my materials, including my last patron-only lecture on the history of the United States in 100 Objects, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description, and you can contribute at any amount, even if it's just a dollar. And I hope soon to be speaking with a friend and fellow historian about the Dutch Empire and understanding what the Dutch were up to and how they were trying to govern their empire as I start getting into the early colonization of America. Thank you. 